So many people have said to me that the reason why they can't do what I'm doing is that they've pegged me as fearless. And I've, I've frequently said to people, no, I, I have plenty of fears. I just never allow those fears and those doubts to get in my way. Welcome to Lead With We, the podcast where top business leaders and founders share how they built their companies to be high impact and high growth by putting We First. I'm your host, Simon Mannering, founder and CEO of We First. Lead With We is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Welcome to this week's episode of Lead With We, where I'm talking to Kara Golden, who's the founder and CEO of Hint Water, which is the leading unsweetened flavored water company in the country, and who was recently named one of Fortune's most powerful women entrepreneurs. So I could not be more excited to speak to Kara. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Kara, I've got to ask you, there's no category more competitive than water. And then you came along and said you wanted to start a water company. How many people told you no? Thousands, actually. It's, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think about this a lot. And, you know, I, I think that the biggest challenge when you hear no's from people is you, you probably have your own doubts, right? You know, and it was tiny. It was a tiny, I mean, this was almost, almost 15 and a half years ago now where people were starting to see it in Whole Foods. And, and again, it was very, very small, just in the Bay Area where I live initially. But if I wouldn't have had those consumers saying to me, like, I get it, you're helping me drink water. I don't want, you know, these other products anymore. Um, you know, why aren't you in more places? All of those things. The balance of that really, really helps kind of squash the doubts and squash the doubters. Any particular moment of inspiration where you just suddenly thought, well, this has gone from not just a good idea or a potential idea to I'm going to do this. What, what was that moment? So uh, I remember it very, very, very well. I was pregnant with my fourth child. And so on the morning. Okay, so you had, that... no, you had nothing going on. You had a lot of free time. Going and you on. Thought... I actually had a babysitter that day because I knew I was going in for a planned C-section at two o'clock in the afternoon. I wake up that morning on May 27th, 2005, and uh, my husband said, so what do, you, what do you want to do? We don't have to go to the hospital until at two. We have a babysitter, et cetera. And I said, let's load up some cases in the car and go to Whole Foods. I'm going to see, I'd love to like know that it's like on the shelf before I go and deliver the baby. And we get to Whole Foods in San Francisco and we walk in and, and I find the guy that I had been having this dialogue with about is there any competition out there? Is there a market, you know, for for this type type of product? And I would really love it if you could put the product on the shelf. And he said, right. I'll do my best. No guarantees. And then uh, the next day I got a phone call and learned that 10 cases were, quote unquote, gone from the shelf. And I said, OK, who took the product? Because I I really hadn't thought about consumers actually buying the product. I had I had only gone as far as to think if I could just get it on the shelf at Whole Foods. Just making the product, solving for the need you saw. Yeah, right? solving for the need. But then all of a sudden, overnight, 10 cases had been sold. Isn't that crazy, though? We spend all our lives in the marketing or business world, but we don't actually think about that consumer 
purchasing experience that way. And you suddenly this light bulb goes off. They're like, you've made a good product and they actually buy it. I mean, it sounds crazy simple, but it's powerful. Yeah. So, you know, I had lost a bunch of weight prior to my fourth pregnancy and um, my skin had cleared up lots of different health issues that I didn't even know I had just by changing and changing what I was drinking and moving away from you know, this addiction to diet sweeteners. And so when I would explain it to people, people started to see in me these health changes. And then I would still tell them that I got off of diet soda and started drinking water. But for me, water was boring. And so that was why I had all this fruit in the water to, and, and people were like, oh, that's really interesting. Like I was educating people, including the guy at Whole Foods about, you know, the product. And so you know, for any entrepreneur listening out there or, you know, or, or person crazy enough to go start a company in a crowded space, I think that the difference between a, you know, product that really has a purpose is that you do have the ability to educate. In today's day and age, you know, you have to have a great tasting product or a product that, you know, if it's a cleaner or something, it's got to actually clean or, you know, whatever that. But but I think it's like, what is your reason behind it? And what did you discover? And I think consumers more than ever today really want to hear that. But how did that ladder up to becoming, you know, this overarching purpose of helping people live healthier lives? I mean, when did that kind of larger idea that guides the company take formulation? When did that stick? Yeah. So I think when I heard consumers, potential consumers, thanking me for educating them and then somewhat joking around, but somewhat serious saying, oh, I'm going to go do what you're doing. I'm going to go stick a you know cucumber or pomegranate in my water and do that at home. And I thought that is fine if you've actually got access to fruit at home. But if you're out and about, that's such a challenge when you look around on the shelf at what's available. And the main reason why I want to do this is that if we can actually get people to enjoy water, then they will change health. Would you look at the journey, especially in those early years, and say it was just happenstance and just not giving up? Or were you driven and intentional about it? How would you characterize yourself as an entrepreneur in those early years? I think I was definitely driven, but I was curious, right? Like I, like the, this concept of just getting people to love the product first, there wasn't any big, like, you know, sitting in a room with five people. We didn't have five people. It was me. And, you know, my husband was joining me because he felt sorry for me He's an intellectual property lawyer. And he was like, I don't know, it'd be sort of cool to get people to enjoy water, but I have no idea. What Pomegranate, cu yeah. cucumber, <laughs> blueberry. I mean, and how did you prototype to see if it even worked? Were you just literally doing it in the kitchen? I mean, how do you test it for market? It's such a, a rigorous process now. Well, I, we were doing it in our kitchen, but Truth be told, I was living right across the street from a school in San Francisco, the town school. It was an all boys private school. My kids did not go to school. They were still young. They didn't go to school there. But I knew a lot of the parents, mostly mothers that were doing drop off in the drop off line. And there's always this like, you know, long line of cars. And so, you know, they would see me out front and, you know, saying hello. And then finally, I thought, oh, if I'm there at eight o'clock in the morning, I can actually go and get them to try this product. 
and and that's another thing that I I think is is uh, you know also sort of a discovery in in this whole world is that people feel today like they have ownership in Hint because they were part of that drop off line, right? Like where I or or I should say, you know, when they were like sitting in their cars and I'm sitting here saying, hey, try this flavor. And so people would have really strong opinions about different flavors. They'd be like, oh, no, no. And then half of them were like, wait, did like, did you how did you what, what are you doing? I love how down and dirty that is, that you're literally handing out product to people. People look at success and they kind of project backwards as if it was this golden run or whatever. But you're literally out there with the carpool handing out, you know, water. So when you got to take it to market, suddenly business in inverted commas, comes along. How did you decide on the name? How did you decide on the packaging? How did you take this purpose that you had to educate people about water, to improve their lives? How did you think through taking it to market? You know, starting with Whole Foods, we we really, you know, thinking back on that, I thought, okay, we sold 10 cases the first day. This is going to be, you know, the next Coca-Cola, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, we thought it was, it was off to the races. I mean, there were so many things that I did not know, including distribution, how to get a you know sh- proper shelf life, all of these things. But I, I think that the key thing for me was always figuring out where this customer was. So I knew early on, just as an example, that this consumer that was going into Whole Foods, which was a brand new store in the San Francisco Bay Area 15 years ago, was really interested in buying things that are healthier. But is that, I mean, how did you pitch Whole Foods in the first place? You're a, an unknown quantity. You've got an unproven product. They've got a lot of kind of established brands that they could choose over you. How did you pitch it? Uh, the local store, the guy in the store. So they used to, and this has probably changed since the acquisition by Amazon, but they used to allow a certain percentage of shelf space to be, um, for local brands. I I didn't know the rules, right? Like I, I, and I didn't ask what the rules were. I would just think like, okay, how would people find a distributor? I would go into the local store and I would watch who was setting a shelf. And I'd say, oh, do you work here in the store? And then they'd say, oh no, I work for such and such brand. And then I would just start asking. For all of that chutzpah, all of that just showing up and just moving forward, that works to some extent, but also there are dark days as well. For any entrepreneur where things go wrong, what would you say? What was your darkest day? Do you ever have a moment where you thought you are going to give up? It just was too hard. It wasn't working. And how did you get through it? Yeah, so it it started, it wasn't really a day. It was a year and a half where it started with a major high. Uh, so we got into Starbucks. Um, nationwide in Starbucks, which was, you know, a big win, right? We we initially thought it was going to be a test. And then prior to even going into the test, they came back and said, you're going to be in all 11,000 Starbucks locations and, you know, huge, right? We were still Bay Area and, you know, on the East Coast in a few places, but really nothing in between. And, and certainly, um, you know, not in, in any type of stores like a Starbucks. And so we got into Starbucks, we asked the question, okay, what is success, right? Like how many bottles do we have to sell per day? We got all of that information. Um, And we 
within a few months, we were actually doing triple the amount of bottles per day that we were told was success. So every day I came in and I checked those numbers on the computer. I was, you know, feeling pretty high. We had about 40% of our overall sales at that point in Starbucks. Um, and so we get a call from a buyer a year and a half later saying, um, super nice to meet you. I'm the new buyer. I just wanted to share that we're going to be removing you from Starbucks next week. And I'm like, wait, what? next week? we're doing triple the amount of business. Like you must not have gotten the numbers like here, let me share them with you. And uh, she said, I'm really sorry that, you know, this is a directive from Howard Schultz's office. And I was like, really? I mean, like maybe he hasn't seen the numbers. And she said, no, it was, you know, really a strategic decision that he really wants to put higher margin business into the case, including food. And, you know, we're a $2 item, right? Like you got to sell a lot of water in order for it to make sense. And, and so there was nothing that I could do. And, you know, the, the hardest thing for me was really knowing that I had six months worth of product in the warehouse that so what did we, you had, do? That what we did had already made. I, uh, you know, I cried. I don't cry very often. I went home and I cried and I thought, what am I going to do? And then Finally, like after a day of kind of, you know, really thinking about this, I came back and we got a phone call from Amazon and the guy from Amazon was a buyer for this new business that they were launching, which was grocery. And he wanted to put Hint into grocery. How did they even know about you? Like, did Starbucks come and find you out? Did Amazon come and find you? Well, well it's happen? interesting. He was you know, another Seattle based company, but he said, I go, I buy your product all the time in Starbucks and I love your product and I'd love to put it in. Right. And I, and I didn't know if I should actually educate him on the fact that we had just been kicked out of Starbucks. I didn't. He said, you know, what is the lead time to actually get this produced? And I said, you know, we, we overproduced actually our top flavor, Blackberry, and I'd be happy to sell it to you today. And and so he said, oh, that's terrific. Like, you know, I, I thought I was going to have to have some lead time, but that'd be amazing. And we'll send you a PO. We'll pay for it. All of these things. We became one of the top products in grocery and still to this day. I mean, we're the number one flavored water on Amazon. We sell a ton of product through Amazon. Isn't that amazing that that door closed and this other one opened and you were ahead of the game in terms of e-com? Yeah. But and I learned a lot. So two things that I learned from this. Number one, doors do open, right? And so, and I always, I mean, this is what I would say about life, not only, you know, your sort of life lessons, whether you equate it to business or to personal is that, is that the, the sad doesn't always last, right? The, the great stuff will come, but also it's important to pay attention to the lessons. And so let me ask you, above and beyond this success, because your product outright is helping people, it's giving them a more responsible, healthier choice. Did you ever kind of codify your impact goals? Did you ever sort of ladder up from that and say, okay, I'm making a product that in and of itself is beneficial? When did you start to formalize the impact you wanted to have? So it actually, it was really interesting through that Amazon relationship. We started to, for the first time, see 
that people were buying on Amazon and were leaving comments around health. Remember, I had started this company to really help myself get healthier, but it was at that moment where I was seeing that people were not only leaving comments about, oh, you helped me, this product helps me drink more water, or, you know, I've got type two diabetes and I'm trying to deal with this or some other health issue along the way, which frankly was similar to what I had, you know, the reason why I had started this company in the first place. And so that was when I was really seeing that it was harder to measure until Amazon started. Then I could really start to see the impact. And that's when I wanted to communicate with these consumers. And unfortunately, that data on Amazon belongs to Amazon. And so that was really the point when I said, this is a discovery, but it's also a roadblock that I need to figure out how I get the data. And, you know, multiple meetings in, in Seattle, they weren't going to give us the data. And so finally I said, I want to start our, our own store here and get the data. So we launched our direct-to-consumer platform at drinkhint.com about a year after Amazon. Fast forward almost seven years now. That business is 55% of our overall business. And while, I mean, it's it's massive for, for us. And how big is your team at this point? And are they coming to you because of the product you're making? What did your culture look like at that point? Small. We were, we were only like, you know, I don't know, 20, 25 people at that time. We're about 200 now. And we still, you know, we really look at our brand as, as truly an omni-channel you know, brand where, you know, just this year we launched in um, Walmart and Sam's Club and Aldi. And then right in the middle of the pandemic at the beginning of uh, April, we got a phone call from Costco and they, you know, were having issues with some of their suppliers not being able to actually furnish their beverage um, because uh, cans, it ends up, are, which a lot of these products are in, is, uh, primarily made in in Asia. And so um, with the pandemic, a lot of these factories shut down. And so they were, you know, major beverage companies were forced to short ship and you don't short ship into a Costco or Walmart or, you know, whatever. And so because we did everything in the U.S., um, they knew about that and they reached out to us and and you know, we had pitched them many times and had done some sort of regional stuff along the way. But you mentioned COVID a moment ago. I mean, water is touches people's lives in so many different ways. And we've all been living under these incredibly extreme circumstances. Were there any particular responses you had to COVID, either in terms of your business or how you were helping others out there? How did you respond? Uh, I was actually in New York um, the week of March uh, 8th when you know New York was shutting down w- way before the West Coast, sort of unofficially, but we made an early decision on uh, March 11th to actually shut down our New York office. And you know, now it's the weekend, I'm, I fly back to San Francisco, I, I pop in on that Friday night, March 13th to Target on my way home. My son said, hey, can you stop at Target on the way home from the airport? Of course, exactly what I wanted to do at nine o'clock at night, but um, but went back to um, the section that has Hint. You know, we typically have 16 feet of space in, in Target stores and not a bottle on the shelf. 
in Target that night. And I thought, uh, this isn't good. I go in the back room. You know, there's no back stock. I talked to a manager. I'm like, you know, hey, uh, what what's going on? And he said, I, you know, it's it's just really bad. We're out of product everywhere. And I said, you know, I'd heard about hoarding in stores and you know, and, and he's like, it's really, really, it's really bad. So you bad. had to and, ramp up production incredibly? Well, so I, I went to a bunch of different stores that actually that night and Saturday morning. And, and at that point, you know, really recognized that there was a key thing that we needed to educate, not only the stores about, but also our distributors about, which was that we're an essential product. And so essential products actually get prioritized on the trucks to actually go in to the stores. And so we went out to Amazon because of course we still sell a lot of product through Amazon as well. You know, we said, look, we're an essential product. They said, okay, fine. So continued the education. But then in addition to that, we thought in order to actually get these shelves stocked, we have plenty of product in the back. Let's just offer to just send a truckload in like now. So on that Sunday, we, we went out to all of our retailers and we said, we know you get our product through distributors, but we're willing to just send a truckload in and, you know, we'll just invoice you later. About half of them took us up on it. And I mean, the product that the shelves were empty and we were in there distributing product early to solve the problem for, you know, these buyers in these stores in order to have product. Water is such a bigger issue, you know, access to clean water that is actually good for your body is, is such a bigger issue because, you know, a lot of water is compromised, you know, in the various forms that we get to enjoy it or access it. I know that you're committed to water more broadly. You know, how are you trying to expand this? What else are you doing in the water category? Yeah, so it all stemmed out of a project that I was working on in Washington around getting hint on uh, school lunch trays. It ends up that that whole um, school lunch trays that go into public schools and, and Catholic schools, about 30 million kids across the country, instead of having, you know, the carton of milk on the tray um, and it once in a while in orange juice, I said, wouldn't it be great if hint, you know, it's healthy, it's like better. The argument that we got back from the Dairy Association, who essentially owns the beverage choice on these trays, is, you know, there's drinking fountains that kids, if they want water, they can have water from drinking fountains. And so a lot of nutritionists in schools would reach out to me and let me know that they wanted to have hint on the trays. But, you know, when I said, sorry, we lost the argument, it's not going to happen for a few years. They said, oh, that's, you know, that's too bad because these water fountains are terrible. There's tons of lead. There's, you know. So how right? do you want to solve for that? What What's the solution? So I think it's two things. Number one, it's every single spigot in a school should be tested nationwide because we don't know what ultimately is is in there. And if it's not, if you have one that doesn't pass, this is the other dirty little secret, is that the most states only say that you have to let the community know that goes to that school. How many people do you know that know that don't go to that school? Maybe their kid goes to a private school down the street. For you to actually gain information about a school, it's really, really tough. I mean, I, I used as an example in, in California is, you know, when you buy a house, you get 
a geological survey as to what your house is actually sitting on, right? Man, why isn't it mandatory for a seller to actually share what is the water supply in this area? So you're trying to legislatively change that. You're advocating for that change. Yeah. And, and so since, since I've been working on this, which is about the last year and a half, and I've been working on it with Congresswoman Jackie Speer, lots of things have come up including impeachment hearings and, you know, COVID and lots of other stuff. Have, Things have that come got up. in the way. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a chemical in water that really has it surfaced in, in the, it's been around for a while, but it's really surfaced in the lack last year. And I encourage everybody to become knowledgeable about it. It's called PFAS. It's P-F-A-S. And it's, um, it's, there was a movie out last December called Dark Waters it's on Netflix. It talked a little bit about it, but essentially it's, it's Teflon. So we all heard about Teflon. We used to be told to like cook with Teflon. Well, then if we all found out that it was cancer causing. So according to the NIH and the Center for Disease Control, it's a cancer causing ingredient. And so there were plenty of lawsuits against the manufacturer DuPont who, you know, was manufacturing this Teflon because they dumped the Teflon into the water, uh, mostly up in Michigan. And so unfortunately, lots of cancer, um, you know, probably stemming from the effects of people just drinking the water, not just in Michigan, because over time, all of our waterways are connected. So it's trickled down into lots of places where my initiative has heated up in, in terms of like actually letting consumers not only measuring PFAS, but actually letting consumers know about what's in their water supply is that there are some studies right now around COVID that suggest that the people that have actually had COVID, some survived, some did not survive, that have PFAS in their bloodstream are not developing antibodies. So there's some legislation that's going on right now around this whole conversation. You know, there's this core theme of perseverance and just taking it head on. You've got this great book called Undaunted, and you've got this really interesting podcast, Unstoppable, and both of them are these sort of unwords, unstoppable, undaunted. I mean, through all the ups and downs on this incredible journey, what would you say is the lesson, the insight that you'd want to share with, you know, tomorrow's aspiring social entrepreneurs, people who want to make a difference too? I mean, I think that the the main reason, you know, even why I wrote the book was was just so many people have said to me that the reason why they can't do what I'm doing, whether it's, you know, starting a company or going to Washington to try and change this initiative or having four kids and start a company. I mean, what whatever the issue is, is that they've pegged me as fearless. And I've I've frequently said to people, no, I, I have plenty of fears. Right. I have lots of fears. I have lots of doubts. That's not it at all. I just never allow those fears and those doubts to get in my way. I mean, everything from, you know, how I parent to how I, you know, build a company and, you know, and everything I, I like what my life is about. It's it's more about a journey and it's less about what I accomplish. That doesn't mean that I don't have goals along the way. But everything from, you know, getting into Starbucks, getting into Amazon, like allow the sort of unexpected to happen 
even if it's because you're trying to make up for something that really went bad. You know, I was always here to solve a problem. So these successes are really proof points that fear doesn't have to paralyze. It can actually empower you. And I think any entrepreneur can just take that to heart and put it to work for themselves because there will be those challenges, as you say. But I think one of the greatest gifts of entrepreneurship is it's always so incredible and surprising where you end up if you just keep going and you do reframe these challenges as opportunities. And that's really what Undaunted is about. It's about, I, I believe that if I can inspire people through storytelling to really get to know me and, and how, you know, not just built the story of Hint, but other things along the way. And there's, there's journeys along the way that just makes you learn more about yourself and become a better person. And that's really what it's about. Kara, thank you so much for sharing not only the Hint journey, but the personal journey on the way. They go hand in hand and look forward to seeing greater success for the company and its impact. Thank you so much. Lots of fun. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Lead with We, where I spoke with Kara Golden, the founder and CEO of Hint, who revealed to us how you can launch a multi-million dollar business from your kitchen by simply crafting a better product, and how a courageous and fearless mindset can manifest success despite the toughest of times, and then how you sustain that success in one of the most competitive markets in the world. If you want to subscribe to Lead With We, you can find us on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and please recommend it to your friends and colleagues so they too can become purposeful and profitable businesses. If you'd like to learn more about how you can build a purposeful brand, do check out wefirstbranding.com, where we have lots of free resources and case studies. See you on the next episode of Lead With We.